Thank you for listening to the Grace Church of Mabton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Thanks for listening. Well, are you uh, familiar with the idea of a wake-up call? Anybody ever experienced one of those? I was remembering back to my first year of college when I was a freshman living in a dorm and on my hall there were about 15 other guys or so, all of us freshmen, and all of us trying to adjust now to life without our parents, life with little supervision and no one there to keep us on track. And there was a group of about, <clears throat> about six guys or so on my hall who really, really liked to play video games. They liked to play them so much that they would stay up all night playing video games, and then they would sleep during the day. And this was back in the days, I think they were playing an original Sony PlayStation, if any of you know or care what that is. I think Final Fantasy was their game of choice. It was a one-player game, so one of them would play, and like five of them would sit and watch all night long. I didn't get it, but that's what they did. Of course, so if they're playing video games all night and sleeping all day, guess what they're not doing in college? They're not going to class, they're not studying. And so midterms came around and midterm grades came out and these six guys had a combined GPA of somewhere right around one, like a 1.0, pretty much all Fs with an occasional D thrown in by the mercy of a professor somewhere. They're pretty much failing all their classes. And so it was a wake-up call for them this sudden realization of the big picture of what's going on right now in their world, that they're in college and they're not doing well and some changes need to be made. And so a few of them made those changes. They stopped playing video games. They started studying. And a few of them actually made it all the way to graduation once they learned some of those lessons. But a few of them didn't make the changes They did not make it to graduation. In fact, I'm not even sure they made it to the end of the semester. I think their parents had a few things to say about the tuition bills that were coming and uh, how they were spending their time. Well, sometimes as Christians, we need a wake-up call. When we lose sight of Jesus, the big picture, when we get sidetracked, sometimes through temptation into sin, sometimes through discouragement or apathy, we wander away from Jesus. And our text today, we're going to see, it's like a wake-up call for us as Christians. We have here in this passage from Revelation a vision of Jesus that opens our eyes to see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish, to see and to realize that he is present with us. And we see Jesus like this in his presence. It's a wake-up call for us to repent of our sins, to renew our courage and our resolve, and to remain faithful to him. So you can see our outline for today. It's in your bulletin. It's up here on the screen. If you'd like to take notes, you can get that page out of your bulletin. Be prepared to take notes and have your Bible open if you can to follow along as we look at some of what John says here in this passage. So first in our outline, we'll have John's commission. And this is primarily in verses 9 through 11 where John describes how he received this message from God. Then second, we'll look at the vision of Jesus, which is in verses 12 through 16, and actually goes a few verses farther into 17 and 18. And then finally, we'll see the significance for us, that Jesus is present with us 
and what this implies for us, how it's a wake-up call for us. So first, John's commission. One of the things about the book of Revelation that we often forget is that the book is actually written as a letter. So if you remember from last week, back in verse 4 of chapter 1, we had a really simple introduction to the letter back in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. John writing to these seven churches. Now in our passage here in verses 9 through 11, we get more of an expanded description of the circumstances that were taking place when this letter was written. So verse 9 tells us again that the book is written by John. Most likely this is John who was the apostle, the brother of James who had traveled with Jesus during his lifetime. Most likely, we won't get into all the reasons for this, but most likely this is being written much later in John's life, probably somewhere around the year 90 AD or so is kind of a good estimate for that, but much later. John's probably an old man. In verse 9, John describes his circumstances. Here's what he says in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John says here in the first part of this verse that he is a partner in the tribulation, meaning that he is suffering persecution along with the Christians, these seven churches to whom he's writing. They're, not, they're partners in tribulation. They're all suffering right now, but they're also partners together in the kingdom. They all belong to Christ. And as partners in the kingdom, in the midst of this suffering, they're enduring together. They have patient endurance together, John says. And he says he's on the island of Patmos. And we know from history that this island Patmos was used by the Romans at this time as what's called a penal colony. This is a place when the Romans had someone who they didn't really care for in society, kind of a troublemaker. And so they want to kind of get this person out of society so they stop causing problems. But they don't really have enough cause to execute them. They don't really want to throw them in prison or have to deal with the hassle of having them in prison. And so they would exile them, send them to go live on this island of Patmos, and then tell them you're you're banned to that island. You have to stay there. You can't leave, you can't travel away from this island. And so when John says he's suffering tribulation and he's on the island of Patmos, most likely he's on this island because he's been exiled to the island. His preaching about Jesus has been too disruptive for the Romans. And so they've removed him to this island. And so he's writing now to these seven churches out of his exile on this island And in verse 11, he gives a list of the seven churches that he's writing to, and and each church is identified by the name of the town that it's in. And these seven churches, these towns, are actually real places in the ancient world. We can place them literally on the map. So I have a couple of maps for us. I don't know if you're into maps, but here's a couple of maps. So this is kind of a modern-day map of the area around the Mediterranean Sea, And so you have Africa kind of down on the bottom, Europe up on top, Asia would be off to the right. And if you can see where the country of Turkey is, do you see Turkey there? Turkey. So the next map when we get to it is going to be kind of the 
this side, the west coast of Turkey, along where it says the Aegean Sea, if you can see that written in there. Okay, so if we go to the next map, kind of focus in there. So that's the country, what is today Turkey, but now this map has kind of the ancient names of the different regions. And so you can see Asia, they didn't use the word Asia for the whole continent of Asia like we do today. Asia was a region in what is Turkey today. And you can see the island of Patmos down there in red. It's a little island about 30 or 40 miles off the coast of Turkey. That's where John was. In fact, they say that from the island of Patmos, you can actually see across the water and see the mainland where these churches are he's writing to. And then you can see the seven cities that are identified with those stars. And they're actually, the way that they're listed in our text of who John is writing to, they're actually listed in order, starting with Ephesus. If you were to sail from Patmos, you could sail to the harbor of Ephesus, which is on the coast. And then there was a road. You could travel this journey in order, like they're listed in Revelation, from Ephesus to Smyrna, up to Pergamum, then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So it kind of makes a loop around this area in what was then Asia, what's now modern-day Turkey. So that's why they're called the seven churches of Asia, if you've heard that phrase before. These are the seven churches that John is writing to. And so John has a message for these seven churches. He's stuck on the island of Patmos. He's suffering persecution. He knows they're suffering persecution along with other struggles. And so he puts together this letter for them. Okay, so that's kind of the historical background of the letter. If we go back to our text in verse 10, John explains where this message came from. And he explains how he has this message that has come directly from God through the Holy Spirit, whereby the Spirit John heard a loud voice speaking to him, a voice, loud voice like a trumpet, telling him what to write down. So John is saying to these seven churches, I have a message directly from God to you. I'm on Patmos. I'm suffering tribulation just like you are. We're partners together in the kingdom. We're brothers together in Christ. Here's what God has given to me to give to you. And that takes us to our second point now, to John's vision of Jesus in glory. So what is the message now from God through John to these churches? Well, the first thing we have beginning in verse 12 is a vision where John now describes something he saw. This is the first vision that we have in the book of Revelation. There are many more visions throughout the book of Revelation. And these visions are all difficult to interpret. In one sense, when we read a vision like this, it's kind of like we talked about with the kids where we need to use our imagination to close our eyes even and to see if we can picture what John is describing that he saw. Okay, so we can actually try this if you want. It's kind of dangerous to ask you to close your eyes while I'm preaching because I know what happens when your eyes are closed. Okay, some of you maybe have already closed your eyes, whether intentionally or not. Okay, but, but close your eyes and see if you can envision with your imagination, what John is describing. He says he saw someone who was like a human-like being, a man-like figure, standing in the midst of seven lampstands. 
He's wearing a long robe and a gold sash. His hair is white like wool or snow. It's okay, so far so good. Now it starts getting a little weird and then weirder, okay? His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet are like polished bronze, shiny bronze. His voice is as loud as rushing waters, like waterfall. In his right hand, he's holding seven stars. And now here, if it's not weird yet, here it comes. From his mouth is coming a two-edged sword, and his face shines like the bright noonday sun. Okay, can you kind of picture him? You kind of got something in your mind of what John is describing. He says he turned, and this is what he saw. So who is John seeing here? Who is he describing? Well, we figure that out in verse 18, when this being, this human-like being, speaks and says, I am the one who died and is now alive forevermore. Who died and was raised from the dead never to die again? It's Jesus. This is Jesus. This is actually, if you think about it, this is the first description we have in the Bible in any way that describes Jesus' physical appearance. If you think about this, and this may be something we don't think about, but in the Gospels, all the talk about Jesus and what he did and taught and all that, they never describe what he actually looked like. Did Jesus have long hair or short hair? Curly hair? Was he tall? Was he short? Was he, did he exercise a lot? Was he pretty trim and fit? Or did he kind of develop a dad bod as he got to be 30, 32 years old? Was he graying or balding? You know, all these questions we have about Jesus and what he looked like. Well, here's the first description of his appearance. And so we can try to imagine now what Jesus looks like in heaven, exalted in glory. So in one sense, that's what John is doing for us. He's helping us to see what he saw, to envision what he's seeing. But then what's really interesting about this vision and about really all the visions in Revelation is that when we go back through those details of the description, and when we kind of dig into them a little bit deeper, we quickly realize there's a lot more going on here than just a physical description In fact, pretty much all of the words that John uses to describe Jesus come straight out of the Old Testament. He's using language that goes back to the tabernacle, to the priests in the tabernacle, a lot of phrases and words that come out of visions from the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and elsewhere. And we go back and start piecing together where all this language comes from the Old Testament it starts to take on more significance about who Jesus is and what kind of being he is, what he has accomplished, and what he will accomplish. Okay, so we're going to try to kind of go through this. It'll be pretty quick because there's so many details and so many different Old Testament connections. Okay, so you can try to jot them down if you want to, try to kind of follow along, but then we'll bring it together at the end with kind of the big picture of what's going on here. Okay, so how do these descriptions connect back to the Old Testament. Well, the first thing John says that he saw when he turned was he saw seven golden lampstands. If you go back into the Old Testament, 
We find instructions in Exodus chapter 25 where there's instructions for how the people of Israel were supposed to build the tabernacle. And one thing that they were instructed to build was a gold lampstand that would go in the tabernacle later in the temple. And this lampstand would have seven lamps on it. One lampstand in the Old Testament with seven lamps. It's what we call a menorah today. And we actually have, I've got another picture up here for you. We have a pretty um, detailed picture of the menorah. Do we have that next picture? Of the menorah that was actually in the temple in Jesus' day. So you can see how there's being carried this lampstand and you see the seven lamps on top of it. One lampstand, seven lamps like a menorah. So this is from, this is an engraving on the Arch of Titus, which is in Rome, but it's commemorating when the Romans conquered the Jewish temple in 70 AD and how they hauled off the menorah back to Rome. And so this is at least in 70 AD the, what the menorah likely looked like in the Jerusalem temple, this lampstand. And probably something like that, if not the same one, was in the temple in Jesus' own day. And so there's instructions. This is a lampstand that's supposed to go in the temple. The lamp would go in, the, in front of the altar in the temple, and the flames of this lampstand were to represent the presence of God. So the people of Israel came to worship God, even though they could not see God in the temple. He was present there, and his presence was symbolized by the flames of this lampstand. So now John has this vision in heaven. But instead of seeing one lampstand with seven lamps, he sees seven gold lampstands. And later, when we get to the very end of our passage in verse 20, we're told that these seven lampstands actually represent the seven churches in Asia, as if each church is a lampstand present with Jesus in heaven. Okay, so hold on to that idea that lampstands represent the churches, because we'll come back to that in a little bit. So you see seven lampstands here. In the midst of these lampstands, John says, is a person that John describes in verse 13 the first phrase he uses is this person is one like a son of man. And these words come directly out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. One like a son of man. And in that vision of the book of Daniel, go back to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, the prophet Daniel, where there's the ancient of days sitting on his throne. And one like a son of man, Daniel says, appears before the Ancient of Days on his throne and receives an eternal kingdom from God that is far superior to any other kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will reign over all other kingdoms forever. So John says, I turned and I saw one like a son of man, the one Daniel described in Daniel chapter 7. This son of man, John says, was wearing a long robe and a gold sash, this is the kind of clothing that a priest would have worn in the Old Testament. The same clothing, long robe and sash, appears in a vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. And so you put together the lampstands, kind of like what was in the tabernacle or temple, and now clothing, kind of like what a priest would wear, and it's almost like the Son of Man here has some kind of priestly function, like he's in a heavenly temple doing priestly kinds of work. Then we keep going in verse 14, he has white hair, white like wool or snow, John says. Well, that takes us back to Daniel chapter 7 again, 
The Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, and Daniel says there was white hair, but guess who had the white hair in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7? God, yeah, not the one like the Son of Man, but the Ancient of Days had the white hair. And so now it's as if John is saying that divine, it's like a conflating of the two, the, the divine white hair of the Ancient of Days is now on the one like the Son of Man. Eyes of flame, John describes here. Those are a part of a vision Daniel has in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, along with the robe and the sash. He says that this one, like a son of man, had the feet of bronze. When you think of part of his body being bronze, it might make you think, if you remember back to our sermon series in the book of Daniel, is all this bringing back that sermon series in the book of Daniel for you? Like it would if you ever remembered it in the first place, right? Okay. But in the book of Daniel, Daniel has the vision in Daniel chapter 2 of a statue that's made of different parts, different types of metal and its body parts, if you remember that. In Daniel's vision, though, the thighs were of bronze and the feet were of iron and clay. And so there's something kind of similar going on here, that there are feet now of bronze. Maybe there's some kind of connection to Daniel's vision. But bronze was also, we know, a metal used often in armor. And so to have bronze like this could suggest that this one like the Son of Man, he's not just like a priestly figure or a divine figure, but he's also something of a warrior here, if this represents armor somehow. He has a voice like rushing waters. The same is said in visions in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, and Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24, and other places too. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. Now that's weird when you stop and think about it. When we look at Jesus in heaven, is he really going to have a sword coming out of his mouth for all eternity? Well, the language comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, where it describes judgment, the judgment of God, how God is so powerful that when he judges, his words are like a sword that strikes down his enemies. He doesn't go out and fight his enemies in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He says the word. His tongue, his words are a sword to defeat his enemies. Later in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 15, Jesus, when he appears in his final victory, he appears with a sword that comes out of his mouth and he uses it to strike down the nations, to conquer them. And then he is exalted as king of kings and lord of lords with all nations and kings and kingdoms subjected to him. Again, it's not a physical fight. He speaks and defeats his enemies. His face, John says, shines like the sun. Anytime you have these pictures in the Old Testament of God's glory, it's always bright, always blinding to people. And Jesus has the same glorious brightness about him. He holds in his hands seven stars. What on earth does that represent? Well, may envision how he holds the entire universe in his hands, seven being kind of completeness, like he has all the universe in his hands. Or in the ancient world, even more so than today, astrology was kind of a big deal, where you'd look at the stars and try to determine what your fate is going to be and what the future holds. It could be a way of indicating Jesus holds the future in his hands. But when we get down to verse 20, we find that the seven stars in some way represent, maybe those other things too, but in some way represent the seven angels of the churches. It's as if somehow, very mysterious here, but it's as if each church has some kind of corresponding angel 
or heavenly spiritual being in heaven. And so it's a picture here somehow of how he holds the churches in his hands, perhaps. And then there's more. That's John's description of what he saw. Then we get to verse 17. Jesus is speaking, and he describes himself. In verse 17, Jesus describes himself now with the words, I am the first and the last and the living one. These are the exact words God uses to identify himself in a few places in the Old Testament, including, for one example, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. It's God who says, I am the first and the last and the living one. Jesus now says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And then Jesus points to his death and resurrection. In verse 18, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Hades is like the place of the dead, people thought in that time. And so Jesus is saying, I've overcome death and I have in my hands a key, a set of keys. And there are keys to death. That Jesus has the power to open the door of death itself and to rescue his people from death. Okay, so if you followed all of that, okay, as we kind of went through those so quickly, if you followed all that, we can put those pieces together and see that what John is describing here when he describes Jesus is something of far more significance than just what Jesus looks like. All these pieces come together to show that Jesus is the one who has come in fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the one who receives the eternal kingdom from God as the Son of Man in Daniel's vision. He's the one who will be King of Kings forever. He reigns over an eternal kingdom. But he's not just a king, he's also like a priest in the heavenly tabernacle. It's through Jesus that we draw near to God and worship God. He's like a warrior prepared for battle, his armor and his sword, one who will judge the world and conquer, but with his word, he'll conquer and defeat his enemies. He's died and been raised from the dead, and now he has power to save his people from death through resurrection. And then in that language, several different ways of language that he's using this language to show that he is divine in his very being, that he is God himself, that he has all of the glory and attributes of God, that he holds all things in his hands, the universe, the future, even his own people. What a glorious picture of Jesus, isn't it? When, when we close our eyes and want to use our imagination to not just picture Jesus as the nice teddy bear, than the nice guy who has warm and fuzzy things to say to me, but here's Jesus in all of his glory, all of his splendor, all of his power, all of his victory, all of these attributes. This is what John sees when he sees Jesus. And so how does John respond? What do you do when you see, when you turn around and you see someone like this how do you respond? Well, the glory of Jesus, it's just too much for John. And John passes out. He falls at the feet of Jesus, terrified and afraid. And this is what would happen over and over again in the Old Testament and the prophets and in other passages 
when people, when God somehow revealed his glory to some degree, the response was always terror and fear from people before God. And that's John's response here. If we, if we in our imaginations could conjure up a good enough vision of Jesus to, un, to see what John saw in our own imaginations, how do you think we'd respond? Well, we would probably keel over in fear. And so John passes out. But then in verse 17, we see how compassionate and gracious Jesus is. That he approaches John, he puts his right hand on John, and he says, fear not. Fear not. You don't need to fear me, Jesus says, when you belong to me, when you're a partner in my kingdom, a brother in Christ, like John has said. If you belong to me, Jesus is saying, all this glory, all this divine power and authority, all of who I am is not against you, but for you, because you belong to me, so fear not. What a glorious Jesus. Isn't that fantastic? Okay. Um, I don't know. Do we need to go on to a third point? Yeah, we better. We better. You got more in you, right? The third point. What's, what's the point of all of it? Well, here's our third point. Jesus with us. Jesus with us. Now, here's what's interesting. If you think about point one and point two in our message. Okay, in our first point already, we talked about how Revelation is a letter. It's written by John to these seven churches, to real people, normal Christians living on earth, suffering persecution. Then John says, okay, I got a message for you from God. And the first thing John writes down is this strange, bizarre, but extraordinary vision of Jesus in his heavenly glory. And so it kind of raises the question, how is this vision of Jesus a message for the seven churches on earth. What, what kind of message is that supposed to send to these seven churches? What does Jesus in his glory up in heaven have to do with my life down here on earth? And the connection between the two, between the vision and the churches, the connection is found in the lampstands. And so the lampstands are very important here. If you remember from verse 13, when John turned and he saw this one like a son of man, Jesus was standing in the midst of the lampstands. And then verse 20 tells us, in the end of verse 20, that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These lampstands are a representation of the church in heaven. And so now if you think about this, okay, put on your thinking cap, this is a little twist of logic here. It's almost like the reverse of the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle or temple on earth and a lampstand in that tabernacle or temple to represent God's presence here on earth. Even though you don't see God on earth, even though his presence is in heaven, he's still present here and the lampstand represents his presence. Now in this vision, we have seven lampstands, not on earth, but in heaven. As if the churches, you're dwelling here on earth, but there's a symbol, a representation that our presence is somehow also in heaven, as if we are present with Jesus in heaven. And then that's like a little twist to try to get your mind around, that, that there's a representation of us, the church in Mapton, a lampstand 
in heaven before God representing our, us as a church. And Jesus is in the midst of his lampstands. In fact, if you look ahead to verse one of chapter two, we read that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's a picture for us that even as we exist here on earth, there's the church in Ephesus, the church in Thyatira, the church in Mapton. We exist on earth, gathered together in this city. We are somehow present with Jesus. And Jesus is somehow present with us. We're much nearer to Jesus than we realize. And notice this is not a message to individual Christians. The way this is framed, it's not that I personally have my own lampstand. It's about the body of Christ in a local community having a lampstand. One lampstand for the church in Ephesus. One lampstand the church in Laodicea. One lampstand the church in Mapton. For those of us who are part of his kingdom and share together in the body of Christ, we are with Jesus in his presence. And he is among us with us. Now, why is all this significant? Well, as we move forward into chapters two and three of Revelation, in the weeks to come, we'll have seven messages, one each for each of these churches. Because if you look ahead in chapters two and three, you'll see that there's an individual message to each of these churches, again, in order as you go around that path that we saw on the map. And each of these individual messages to individual churches is like a wake-up call to the church. Kind of like getting that midterm exam. Like, here's your report card. How are you doing? And so throughout those letters, there are similar themes, but then there are individual issues that different churches are facing that get called out in these seven letters. All the churches need a wake-up call. But as we go through those seven messages in chapters 2 and 3 you'll notice that each of the individual messages to the churches begins by repeating a portion of the description of Jesus in this vision. Okay, so look ahead and let me show you what I mean here. Okay, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Okay, if you have your Bible open, here's the first message to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Where have we heard about seven stars in his right hand in the golden lampstands? It's a portion of that vision. Go down to verse 8. Now here's the message to the church in Smyrna. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Where have we seen that language before? In the vision of Jesus. I am the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Go down to verse 12, the message to the church in Pergamum. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And then the message to Pergamum. Go to verse 18, to the church in Thyatira. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And so you get the idea as you keep moving through. Each message to the individual church flows out of the vision of Jesus in his heavenly glory. This is where wake-up calls begin for Christians. It's when we open our eyes and see Jesus as John saw 
Jesus. We see his authority as king. We see his nearness as a priest, his power to judge by his words, his divine nature, his glory, and it's a wake-up call. So if you read through those seven messages, here's just a really brief rundown of the kinds of wake-up calls we're going to see in the weeks to come. There's a wake-up call to the church in Ephesus first. And perhaps we need a similar wake-up call, perhaps like the church in Ephesus. You have slowly fallen away from your love for Jesus. You were once very passionate about following him as a disciple, but as the years have gone by, you've grown weary, and other things have crowded out Jesus. So here's the wake-up call to you and to the church in Ephesus. Look at Jesus in all his glory. And look at how far you have fallen. And so repent and return to your first love, living as you did in the early days of your faith. Or perhaps like the church in Smyrna, the second wake-up call, perhaps you've been faithfully enduring hardship for Christ. You've not fallen far from him, but the wake-up call is a reminder to you that Jesus has conquered the grave and he holds the keys to death so you can remain faithful to him all the way to your grave, enduring persecution all the way to death and not waver from the course. Perhaps like the church in Smyrna, third wake-up call, perhaps you've moved far away from Christ. Far from Christ, you've embraced the teachings of the world. You've begun to live like the world lives, as if other gods are equal to Jesus, even living in sexual immorality in Smyrna. So there's a wake-up call. Look at Jesus and wake up. Repent, lest Jesus comes with the sword of his mouth and judges you. Perhaps like the church in Thyatira, the fourth one, you're enduring in your faith but you're feeling beaten down by the world and wondering if it's all worth it when the world is so hostile toward you and your faith. And so wake up and look to Jesus. He's coming to judge the nations and he'll be king of kings for all eternity. The victory belongs to him and it's near. So keep on enduring until that day. Perhaps like the church in Sardis, You started off faithfully following Christ and serving him, but you're not finishing the course. You've stopped serving him as you once did. Your life in Christ is now on life support. You've forgotten him and the gospel. Wake up. Look to Jesus and wake up. Repent and get back on track. Lest when Jesus returns in judgment, your name would not be found in the book of life. Perhaps like the church in Philadelphia, you're faithful to Christ, and yet it seems like the more faithful you are to him, the less power and authority you have, the more pressed down and oppressed you are by the enemies of Christ. Look to Jesus and wake up and take heart Because Jesus is present with you and he loves you and he'll deliver you and you will reign with him. He's coming soon, 
for you. So don't fear. Don't feel like you need to carry the weight of the world because Jesus is carrying the weight of the world. And he will soon return and you will reign with him in his kingdom. Or finally, like the church in Laodicea, perhaps you're somewhere in the middle of all these churches. Not hot, faithfully following Jesus and enduring. Not cold, falling away from Jesus. You're just kind of in the middle. Holding on, but not really thriving. Wake up. Look to Jesus and repent of your apathy and renew your zeal for following him. We're on our way into his kingdom to reign with him. And right now he is standing at the door in this letter to Laodicea, eager to be present with you, to dine with you. Look to Jesus. Let him in. Renew your passion. Sometimes freshmen, sometimes freshmen in college need a wake-up call. A reminder, open your eyes, college kids. You're in college. Stop playing video games. Get on track, studying, going to classes, so you can make it to graduation. And sometimes we as Christians need a wake-up call. Open your eyes, church, and look to Jesus. We're in the presence of Jesus himself, who is exalted in heaven and full of glory and authority, who has conquered the grave, who return in judgment, who is king of kings for all eternity. So, wake up. Wake up, look to Jesus, and know his love for you and the joy of belonging to him in his presence. And if you need to repent of sins and waywardness, Renew your resolve to hold fast to him and to patiently endure through every tribulation because he will return and he holds the keys to death and he'll raise us from the dead and we will dwell forever with him in his eternal kingdom. So wake up, wake up and may we all endure until that day. Amen, and come quickly, Lord Jesus. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.